Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Good morning. Let me turn on the mic there. Um, it's great to see you. I was, uh, Steve was talking about uh, what he looks like what Pastor Lance will look like 50 years from now. I was thinking in my mind, I think Pastor Lance has the elixir of youthfulness, and he'll probably look like he's like 38 years old 50 years from now, so I'm not <laughs> sure if that's entirely the case. Uh, Steve had a great idea for our uh, fundraising for our youth mission trip, and he had the idea of us putting out some uh, canisters in the breezeway, and if you have some pop cans or other cans that would uh, give five cents to the church using the uh, state of Iowa deposit system, we'd love for you to be willing to dedicate, devote uh, those to the youth mission trip going to Alaska. So we'll put that out in the breezeway, and we've already heard some news about several bags of pop cans uh, being dedicated to the youth Alaska mission trip, so we do appreciate that. Also, last time I was uh, here, I was um, mentioning how um, that the Alaska trip were having a benefit kind of dessert dinner with a concert tied to that. And that Linda Swanson, who uh, plays for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and um, helps out here at the church, and her son is going to Alaska. She and Tim LaFleur here at the piano this morning, they will be doing that at the Temple of Performing Arts. The date has changed because of the venue uh, not being available that day, so it's now June 8th, and so youth leaders will be helping to frame that, and we thank Mrs. Swanson and Ms. LaFleur for helping out in that way. My sweetheart wanted me to show some pictures of last night, so here are some pictures of the junior-senior banquet last night that we had as a church. Um, and what we did last night, we went to Main Street Cafe, and then we went over and we played some escape room, and so it's a lovely time. So here they are at the district there in Ankeny as seniors, as juniors, also some sophomores there, uh, kind of celebrating uh, the lives of the seniors and the youth groups. That was a great time last night, and we are grateful for God's faithfulness in their lives. Last time that... We were here together on Sunday morning. Pastor Lance was preaching from Acts chapter 19. And he had asked, do I want to kind of insert into the narrative of Acts and kind of jump in when he asked me to preach a couple of months ago. And I had said, I think we'll just kind of go right into the city of Ephesus, but not into the text of Acts chapter 19. And that way, no matter where he landed on constructing his sermons and what paragraphs and so on, we kind of fit well together, we gel well together, no matter where we landed. In thinking about preaching this morning, I was reminded of this past January uh, when the San Francisco 49ers faced the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFC Championship game. And to those of you who know what happened there, after losing both Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo to injury during the season, the 49ers had to turn to Brock Purdy, an Iowa State alumnus, I would mention. He was the last pick in the 2020 NFL draft, known as Mr. Irrelevant, who then led the team to a perfect 7-0 record as a starter. However, Purdy himself went down in the first quarter against the Eagles in the NFC Championship game and enter Josh Johnson. He had played for 14 different NFL franchises in his career. That is 43.8% of all the league. He had played for all those teams, as well as one team each for the UFL, AF, and XFL, a true fourth-string quarterback in the NFC Championship game. And so this morning, we're grateful as a church that our pastoral staff was able to go to a conference and to be encouraged and 
to be strengthened in their insights and walk with God and their leadership and preaching and counseling abilities for us. And so I've been called in uh, to kind of step in and, and uh, open the word of God to us. The good news is the word of God is unchanging and it's God's word, God's inspired word and, and for us here today. So if you're not there, turn your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at the text that Steve read for us this morning, Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 21. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, we pray that as we look into this text that our hearts as well as our minds might be opened. And we pray for the preaching of your word. We pray uh, for my voice to be uh, carried forth uh, in strength as well this morning. But most of all, we pray for your spirit to be at work in hearts, in the inner man, in the inner woman. We pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Acts, uh, rather, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 begins by saying, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And as most of you know, when you see a, a scripture text and it begins by saying, therefore, you need to kind of back up and see what's around it, what is the context. He's building upon the previous discussion, which in chapter 4 has been a long series of put off, put on. So put off these sinful habits of the old man, put on these new habits, the new life in Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in the very last verse of chapter 4, verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, to what extent? Even as God in Christ forgave you. So we're to be kind, we're to be tenderhearted, compassionate, we're to be forgiving, to what extent? Even as... God has forgiven us. We are to follow God, but beyond that, not simply following him, but imitating him. We are to mimic God in his love and in his forgiveness. And then we have chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, based upon all he has said, be imitators, mimickers of God as dear children, that is, as loved, as beloved children. And the next verse says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. So here, too, in the verse after verse 1, we have the similar parallel. As Christ has loved us, we are to love one another. We are to mimic, we are to imitate God's love in Christ for us. Now, when we hear the word imitation today in our cultural context, it's often not a positive thing. Uh, for example, I think of imitation leather, and I think of imitation cheese, and I don't know about you, but often that imitation cheese type stuff, it doesn't really quite taste the same. I know it's rather fluid, and you can squirt it on your sandwiches and so on, uh, but it doesn't really seem to me to quite taste the same as real cheese. And in our household, we had bought some furniture for the living room a couple years ago that was imitation leather. We thought it was a great idea because of the great price. But over the months, it just starts kind of peeling off that outer layer of that, whatever that plastic vinyl type stuff is. And so we named our couch Fred because we'd find pieces of Fred attached to our clothing through static strength. And we carry Fred all over central Iowa, wherever we would go, because it was, in fact, imitation leather. But in the Greco-Roman world, Imitation is a positive concept. So Greek philosophers would talk about mimicking or imitating uh, the teacher, the one who is teaching, or in a Christian language, you could say the discipler. And even in the Jewish context, it was a strong concept. They had deep roots in Judaism. We think of be ye holy as I am holy. 
That's a concept of imitation, a concept of mimesis, of following in the example of someone else. And so in this verse, sandwiched between the two ideas of forgiving just as God forgave you and loving just as Christ loved us, we find this verse. And we're going to discover some ways that we as dear children, as beloved children, are to mimic or to imitate God our Father. And we can do that, first of all, by walking in ordered love. Walking in ordered love. Verse 2, and walk. Now, some of your translations may have and live. And the reason for that is because although the word in Greek literally means to to walk, that is to do the physical walking, it's that word. This is a metaphor, though, for living. And when we live... We are to go on a journey. We have the journey of life, the walk, and we have a direction, hopefully. We have a target. We have a focus. We have a destination. We have some place that we are going, but we also have a sense of progress. And so last week in Acts, we kind of landed there with Ephesus and with the church in Ephesus. And all we have in Acts is simply a snapshot of the church in Ephesus. This text this morning is going to give us the long haul the long, grueling, arduous walk of progressive sanctification. So they came to Christ, and I believe it's next week, we'll see elsewhere in Acts chapter 19, they will come, they will burn their magical books, and we'll see signs of sanctification happening there as they are turning to Christ from their sinful habits of the past. But this chapter, Ephesians 5, which is written years later to that same church, is going to give us some insights into that long process of what we call progressive or uh, continual sanctification of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And verse 2 says, again, that just as Christ loved us, so we are to walk in love. So it's not exactly clear, perhaps, from our translations, but we have the word love three times in two verses. We are beloved or loved children. Therefore, we are to walk in love. As Christ loved us. Or as Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. But love isn't merely an internal thing. It's not merely a feeling that we have. Love must be walked out. Love has steps in our lives that manifest outwardly to others the love that we have inside. And what does love look like in action? The very next verse says, as Christ gave himself for us. Now, in the New Testament, we we hear about Judas giving up Christ to his enemies. We hear about uh, Pilate giving him up and the high priest giving him up as well. But in that sense, it means to betray, to hand over, to give up. But the Bible also talks about God the Father, God himself, gave up Jesus Christ for us, meaning he's a gift to us. And Galatians 2.20, a beautiful verse, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live by faith in the Son of God, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So often in the New Testament, the idea of love is immediately paralleled with the idea of giving, of giving up of sacrifice, perhaps the most famous verse of all, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's what love looks like. Love looks sacrificial. It looks toward the benefit of the other. Verse 2 continues by saying an offering and a sacrifice 
to God. Now, offerings could be non-animal things, like the table of showbread is bread that you lift up to God, you devote to God, you dedicate to God the Old Testament. But when it adds an offering and a sacrifice, at that point it refers to an animal who in its dedication loses its life. It involves the death of the sacrificial victim. So here, too, is a way of referring to the sacrifice that is made in Jesus Christ and his love for us. And then it adds, for a sweet-smelling aroma. This depicts things pleasing to God. So like in the Old Testament, you would burn the Old Testament sacrifice, and the vapor, the smoke, would rise up to God, and it would be a picture of, his, of the people's prayers, the prayers of the saints rising to God, which was said to be a sweet-smelling aroma. So this is all a picture of our walking in love. This is the positive part. This is the positive love of loving God and loving others. And that it is our very love for God that animates, empowers, and motivates our love for others in a self-giving, sacrificial manner, just as Christ did. But then the very next verse says, but fornication and all uncleanness. It seems like kind of a strange hop, skip, and a jump to talk about how Christ loved us, gave himself for us, we are to love each other, and then we are to avoid fornication and uncleanness. But the truth of the matter is that, especially in our world, in our context, just like in the first century Greco-Roman world, there are all kinds of imposters of love. That, that is, there are, there are facets of feeling and action and life that people claim are love, but they're not really true biblical love. And coming off Ephesians 4, remember that principle, put on, put off. Put on the new man, put off the old man. We are to put on positive love, Christ-like love. But that also means putting off false forms of love and even disordered love. What does that include? It includes fornication and uncleanness. So fornication being sexual, sexual relations before marriage, if it's being a precise term. Uncleanness in this context could be broad, but it's probably referring in this context to sexual uncleanness. And also covetousness, the very next word there in that phrase. And that may seem odd at first, to jump from sexual sins to covetousness. But think of how the Ten Commandments talk about that we are not to cover our neighbor's property as well as our neighbor's spouse. So they're kind of uh, welded together, right, because they are false forms of desire that are disordered. Covetousness and lust are both the disordering of the created world and putting it in the wrong order and especially putting our desires above God's desires, putting our will above God's will. And the verse continues, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. It's not suitable for those who are redeemed. It's not conduct that is worthy of the gospel, is how the Apostle Paul refers to it elsewhere. And it keeps on going. Neither filthiness, that's wickedness or shamefulness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which also are not fitting. The ancient author Plautus describes a man that was characterized by such coarse language And in his self-justification, in his excusing himself, Plautus said, well, I'm simply a native of Ephesus. That's the way we talk. It's interesting that Paul is is writing to that church, to that city, to the city of Ephesians that evidently had a little bit of a, um, a, a history of 
of talking in a coarse kind of a manner. And that's what they were known for. That was their identity. But this is not to be the identity of saints. Identity of saints is to be a new identity in Jesus Christ. And so we are to walk in love, but we are to walk in an ordered love. An ordered love is not simply an ordered walk then, but also an ordered talk. Coarse jesting would include lewd or dirty jokes, suggestive language, and sexual innuendos. And just like Plautus in the ancient world, we often try to excuse that today. We'll say things like, boys will be boys, or that's just locker room talk, or that's just the way we joke around. But the Bible calls us to purity of speech as well as to purity of action. But it also doesn't leave us with silent mouths. It's not saying, okay, don't jest coarsely. And don't have lewd talk and just kind of zip your mouth and keep silent at all times. What's the very next phrase? But rather giving of thanks. We are to avoid sinful talk, but we are not to remain completely silent. Instead, we are to fill our mouths with gratefulness, which is simply a continuation of the put off, put on principle of chapter four. We put off coarse jesting. We put off lewd talking. We put off that kind of speaking, but then we insert the positive. That is that we use our mouths and our tongues rather to give thanks. And why do we do that? Verse 5, for this you know, you can be sure of this, that no fornicator, unclean person, no covetous, you can see those are the first three words of the previous phrasing, right? fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ and of God. So the people whose lives are characterized by this habitual living in this manner in this manner are manifesting their true identity, that their allegiance is not to God and Christ, but their allegiance is to something else. And putting anything above God is actually idolatry. So putting anything, like valuing anything above God, all that's left in the world besides God is the creator realm. If we put anything above God, we're putting something created above the creator, and therefore it's idolatry. And that's why he adds fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, and who is an idolater. This person has no inheritance then in the kingdom of Christ and God. Literally, in the original it says the kingdom of the Christ and God. And many of you probably realize the word Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah. So he says this person has no inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. He may be thinking of what we would call the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah, the messianic kingdom, as well as the eternal rule of God, the rule and the kingdom of God. So those characterized by such lifestyles reflect their identity. So then Paul continues in the next verse, let no one deceive you with empty words because you are sure of this, for this you know. Because you're sure of this, don't let anyone deceive you. Why? Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The word sons echoes character. We often hear in English, we have phrases like a chip off the old block or an apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It speaks of identity, that the child is just like the parent. But the language of son in particular, beyond child, also speaks of destiny, that is, the son receives the inheritance. 
And the Bible talks about we will receive the kingdom of Christ and of God. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, he says. So recognize their deception and repudiate their deception. Do not partner with them in their sinful lifestyles. Do not become co-partners with them in the consequent wrath of God. Now, we should probably hasten to add another text here from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because I want to make clear that the way that one enters the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, is not by cleaning up our lives and by turning over a new leaf and by getting rid of these sins in our lives. There's a very similar verse, a passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it says, Do you not know? Kind of similar concept. Do not be deceived, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Same language. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, those two phrases appear in Ephesians 5, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But what's the very next verse say? After all this law, like here are God's commands and we fail, we cannot live up to that. What is the next verse? It's a beautiful statement of grace. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. We don't clean up our own acts. We don't make ourselves better every day and in every way and thereby get into the kingdom of God. Rather, we come as those who are needy to Jesus Christ for his forgiveness because he is the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And so Paul's drawing this strong contrast between these people, and he says that we are not to be partakers with them, those who are characterized by the old life. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, how how does this paragraph right here match up together, verses 1 through 7? How does the fact that we are to be imitators of God and walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, How does that match up with getting rid of fornication and uncleanness and covetousness and idolatry? John Phillips declares this, Love is to be enthroned, lust is to be dethroned, and we are to avoid immorality in our walk and impurity in our talk. So actually, the negative part of this paragraph is also speaking to our loves but it's telling us that we need to have properly ordered loves. That is, we need to think through God's system of valuation and priority and and put the highest loves first and then the lower loves lower as we go down the ladder. So here's kind of a paragraph from an early theologian. He said, But living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. So some examples of how this works its way out. We think of covetousness, and covetousness is a disordering. It's an elevation of our own wills above God's will. We think of lust. Lust is a disordering of loves. Lust is the elevation of our own pleasures above God's desires. We think of slothfulness or of laziness. 
Laziness is a disordering. It's an elevation of our ease and of our comfort above productivity. And we think of pride. Pride, at its root, is an elevation of ourselves above God. It's a form of idolatry. But what Paul's getting at here isn't simply the outward actions. He's trying to get to the very heart that manifests itself in those actions. Or as Brian Hedges says, behavior matters, but behavior is always a reflection of what's going on in the heart, of what we love. This means that we can never settle for, more, for mere outward compliance with rules. Our approach to spiritual transformation must always be inside out. If we would change our ways, we must first order our loves. And this is a reminder to all of us. It's a reminder to us as parents that we can't fix the inside of our children, for example. We can make an environment that's conducive to godliness, and we can make an environment that elevates and prioritizes the loves, the desires that we have in the proper order. But in the end, it's got to be an internal work of the Holy Spirit by grace working in the lives of others. But what I said about parenting is actually true of all of us because we are all dear children of our Father, whom we are to imitate. And we are to allow His Spirit to change us from the inside out, that is, to change our desires and put them in the right order. And as a reminder, sinful desires include not only desiring evil things, I think we all know that, that's a sinful desire, desiring something evil, but it could be a desire for good things in the bad way or the wrong time. So things like nice homes and nice cars are nice things. But desiring to have the nice home and the nice car above others or from others, that's covetousness, and that's a disordered desire. Sexual relations are actually good and honorable in the marriage bed undefiled, so sexual relations are good and honorable within the commitment of marital love. Desiring even a good thing in the wrong way or at the wrong time is still a disordered love. And God, through his spirit, is ordering our loves. He is focusing our hearts upon the proper desires in the proper way and at the proper time. So outside of the divine parameters reflected in ordered love lies idolatry. That is loving ourselves or pleasures more than God. So Paul's telling the Ephesians, as children, as beloved children of God, follow him, imitate him, by ordering our loves by his desires. He also tells us, as beloved children of God, we follow his example by walking in manifest light. Walking in manifest light. The next verse says, For you were once darkness. It's really fascinating. He doesn't say, you were once in darkness. He actually says, you were darkness. And then he adds, that now you are light, the same thing. He doesn't say, and now you are in light. It's not just a change of venue, a change of environment, a change of context and location. It's actually a change of character, a change of identity. You are light. Not merely that we are in the light, but that Jesus Christ has become our true identity. And this is very clear by the addition of the phrase, you are light in light the Lord. It's not our own brilliance, it's not our own glory, but rather it's Christ's light reflected in us and living through us. Just like the moon has no light of its own, but is a reflection of the sun, 
Even so, we are to be reflections of Christ's light in our lives. And then Paul commands, walk as children of light. This passage outlines itself rather easily. I mean, Paul lays down his own structure here. And so we come down to our second point. We are to walk in manifest light. Walk in love, walk in light as children of light. In fact, this phrase, children of light, is meant to be a contrast with verse 6, which refers to sons of disobedience. So what I said about sons and about their identity and their destiny, this is the opposite. This is those who are children of light, and their character produces a change in conduct. Because the next phrase says, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, perhaps if you're looking at an English translation, your translation might say the fruit of the Spirit, or it might say the fruit of light. And if you turn your pew Bible, there's a little footnote at the bottom there that describes what's happening. Some Greek manuscripts have fruit of the Spirit. Some have the fruit of light. Whether or not it's fruit of the Spirit here in Ephesians chapter 5, we do know that that same phrase is over in Galatians chapter 5 that contrasts what? The works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And in this context, he is contrasting the works of darkness and the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of light. And just like physical plants, they can't thrive, they can't grow, and they cannot produce fruit unless they have light because of photosynthesis. Even so, spiritual light bears spiritual fruit. So the light of Christ through his word in our lives bears fruit that the character manifests itself in conduct. And then he adds, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So the Lord isn't playing like a game of hide and seek with us. He's like, go find my will, go discover my will, ha, 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 you know, you'll never find it type thing. As we often think about God's will and finding God's will for our lives, he's not playing that kind of a game here. He says, through practice, through experience of walking in the light, you will be able to ascertain what is acceptable to the Lord. In fact, that, that word, find out, could mean both to test, like to test out, but it could also mean to prove, that is, through living life, under the light that we have, we become changed, and then our agent, who we are, changes, and we make better decisions. And we make decisions that please the Lord. They are acceptable to the Lord. I reminded of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, which says, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, they're mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Through spiritual maturity, through the Christian walk, day by day, the long, arduous process of the Christian life, of the Christian walk, we have our discernment sharpened so that we are able more and more to tell what is acceptable to the Lord, to find out what is pleasing to him as we live out the Christian life. So the book of Acts, chapter 19, gives us a snapshot of what happens in Ephesus. This chapter gives us the long journey, like the movie that happens afterwards, after that Polaroid, of what it looks like to live the Christian life. And then Paul adds here, but rather expose them, that is, make them manifest for what they really are, And I'd skip the phrase, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. That's the opposite of the fruit of light, but rather expose them. So light shines, 
but light also exposes. It, it shows something maybe that we did not know was there, and now we realize that it is there. And then he adds, For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. And you may be scratching your head at this point and thinking, how do I expose something without talking about it? Because he says in verse 11, expose them. Verse 12, don't even talk about it. It is shameful even to speak of those things. So one commentator queries, the obvious question is how to expose something without even mentioning it. And I'd remind you that light, by its very nature, by what it is, by what it does, it exposes. So you walk into a room and you turn on the light, and without saying anything, you now see the room in a brand new light because of the illumination. It exposes the words of darkness. But also there's a contrast here, that by people seeing the fruit of light in contrast with the works of darkness. They're like, those two things are quite the opposite from each other. They're very different. I can tell right away there's a difference. There's a distinction between the fruit of light and the works of darkness. And so we expose the works of darkness simply by the very nature of being light, including those works done in secret. The implication there is they are so shameful that they are swept under the rug or they're kept under wraps. Then verse 13 adds, But all things are exposed, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. So there's that language of light illuminating and exposing. And then he says, he quotes, Therefore he says, and what follows is probably an early Christian hymn or song. In fact, in your Bible in front of you, many of you, you might have the phrases, phrase by phrase, it kind of looks like poetry in your Bible. And so most commentators think this is actually an early Christian song or early Christian hymn. Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. It's a little bit different style. It has a cadence that's different than its context. It looks like Paul is quoting from an early Christian hymn or an early Christian song. It's fascinating that three of the concepts here, light and awake or awaken, and get up or arise, those three things all appear in Acts 12, where the apostle Peter is in prison, and the angel comes to him, it's like a light comes on, and he says, awake, arise, let's get out of here. And then he leaves the darkness of the prison. And some people actually wonder if that's the origin of this early Christian song or hymn. Whether or not that's the case, I am reminded of Charles Wesley's famous hymn, And Can It Be?, And one of his verses does something very similar. It takes the language of Acts 12, light, awake, arise, and it says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So you have the language of the light comes on for Peter and for the Ephesians. They are awakened, they are given new life, they arise, and they go out as a testimony of light. Light helps us see things. It helps us find our way. It can be a problem if we can't see. Leon Morris picked up a story about a blind golfer 
who played the game of golf very well. In fact, he won a tournament for blind golfers, and he challenged a golf pro to a match for charity. And this blind golfer emphasized that he did not want any advantages to compensate for his disability. Okay, said the pro, so when would you like to play? The blind golfer replied, any night you like. (laughs) You see, we're at a disadvantage if we can't see. And this is true physically, but it's also true spiritually. And if you've ever been like in a living room scenario, I've, I've done this many times, probably too many times, you're in the bedroom, perhaps you hear a noise or something, or you get thirsty or something, and so you have to walk across the living room, but you're too lazy to turn on the light, and you think you can navigate the living room on your own without turning on the light, and then suddenly, because of a shin rupture, you remember there's a piece of furniture there, right? <laughs> or the worst is when you're barefoot and you step on the Lego blocks that are there uh, on the carpet, and they get embedded into the flesh of the skin of your feet because you can't see them. Well, that's one form of light. That's illumination. But light also exposes. This week, as I was driving uh, through Ankeny, I noticed that McDonald's is now offering $15 an hour uh, to work as a cook or as a cashier at McDonald's, $18 an hour for sub-managers. And I was recalling my very first regular job. I did tasseled corn the summers prior to this. But my regular job was at an old Air Force base that was being remodeled and reinvigorated for another purpose. And I was paid to use a vacuum cleaner and open up all the windowsills across the Air Force base and suck out all the dead in- insects for $2.50 an hour. So two fifty an hour was the minimum wage back then. But the problem was there weren't only insects in the windowsills that were dead. There were these cockroaches. This is in Missouri. They're about that long, and they're kind of reddish. You step into the room, you turn a light, and what happens? They scurry away, right? Because you're exposing them, and they run away. And so we are to be the light that exposes darkness and its works by being children of light. By imitating our Father, we shine forth with his light, and thus we expose the works of darkness in our own lives as we are changed, transformed by Christ, and the lives of others. Third, as beloved children of God, we follow his example by walking in practical wisdom. The next verse says, see then, it's actually the very same word, translated as therefore twice before in this passage. See therefore, just like verse 1, verse 7, that you walk circumspectly. Big word, it means carefully. So we are to process life's decisions wisely. Not as fools, but as wise. So the previous paragraph contrasted light and darkness. This paragraph compares, contrasts, rather, wisdom and folly. So walk wisely, walk circumspectly, walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Literally, buy back the time. Use up the time wisely, or maybe even the opportunity. So make the most of every opportunity. Many of you are aware that Colossians is a parallel book to Ephesians. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 puts this exhortation in the context of evangelism and apologetics. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, Colossians says. Redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. 
So make the most of every opportunity, even in outreach and in apologetics. Why? Because the days are evil. It doesn't simply say, although the days are evil. It says, because the days are evil, therefore we are to walk in light. It's even more of an imperative as as the world around us is dark, that we are light and that we walk in light and that we show wisdom in the midst of folly. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So here have a contrast. Not unwise, but understand. Understand what? What the will of the Lord is. That thing that we're often seeking for. I'm trying to discover God's will. And this passage is telling us how to know what is acceptable to God. What is pleasing to God? What's this aroma arising to God? And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or debauchery. So getting drunk is one form of folly or of foolishness rather than wisdom. It is a form of escapism from life's troubles and life's heartaches for some people. But is really an enactment of foolishness in other ways, as Leslie Mitten says, when the effect of the drug has worn off, the same desperate situation is still there to confront us once again, and we are even less well-equipped to meet it with wisdom and with courage. We haven't talked today, legally, about being under the influence and being impaired, right? So one's under the influence, one's impaired, one's not thinking straight, one's not thinking wisely, uh, John Daly, who is a, a famous professional golfer, and he's famous for his antics both on the course and off the course. He himself, I say this because he himself posted this, so I'm not trying to mock him. He himself po- posted this on Instagram. He posted a $446.10 Taco Bell order on Uber Eats to his Instagram story. Among other things, he had this massive order that included five grilled cheese burritos, ten crunchy taco supremes, ten spicy double steak grilled cheese burritos, one beef burrito, and, and dozens of the free mild sauces. Daly himself captioned his own Instagram story with this caption, Don't drink and order Taco Bell on Uber Eats. <laughs> Complete with a picture of flashing police lights so that Golf Digest titled its article, John Daly's Drunken Taco Bell Order is the Stuff of Legend. The Stuff of Legend. Ordering fast food, just like driving under the influence, stands in the not wise category, right? The foolish category, the column of folly, rather than the column of wisdom. And we can, you know, kind of laugh about that, but don't all of us, many times in our lives, in other ways perhaps, walk in foolishness, walk in folly? We're not walking by the wisdom of the Lord, we're not walking in ordered loves. We're not walking in the light. And so what does Paul add? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's one more extension of put off, put on. Put off being drunk with wine. Put on being under the influence of the Spirit rather than under the influence of alcohol. It is a command, but in the passive voice, it happens to us. The implicit comparison here, then, is between being drunk, which shows being under its influence, and being filled with the Spirit. Also, it's not just about receiving blessing or empowerment, as we often think about being filled with the Spirit. It actually is a reference to being under the Spirit's influence, under His control, under His leading, and under His guiding. How does that happen? Once again, Colossians, the parallel, is very helpful. 
Colossians says, instead of being filled with the Spirit, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Same context, same results, which tells us that being filled with the Spirit is the same as letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly with all wisdom. And in the early church, Acts chapter 6, they were told to find seven leaders full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, which tells us they could identify someone and say, that person is filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. It's not just an internal experience alone. It manifests itself outward in character and in conduct. And how does it do that? Our, our passage here has participles that follow to show what being filled with the Spirit looks like. First of all, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms is perhaps a reference to the Old Testament Psalter. Hymns would be worship directed to God directly. Spiritual songs, perhaps more spontaneous outpourings of praise or maybe even testimonial, testimonial songs. But yet Ephesians doesn't really nail down these strong distinctions. It simply is stressing worshiping God. That's one way we manifest being filled with the Spirit. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So here's a contrast. Colossians even says, teaching one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which reminds us the worship has to have content to be taught. So good worship has good theology in it that's worthy of being taught. You, you share it. It's not simply an emotional download. It is, hopefully, from the heart, though. It says here, it says, in your heart to the Lord. So we have both from the heart, but also content-rich doctrine that's being taught in the midst of the worship. Or as Paul says elsewhere, I will pray with the Spirit, but I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, but I will sing with the mind also. It is both from the heart, but it is also rich in content, is what our worship is to be like. And then he adds another participle, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty universal sounding. And think of Paul and Silas in Philippi as they are in prison. And what do they do in prison in Philippi? They break out in song. Paul practiced what he preached. He was giving thanks always for all things to God, including singing and making melody in his heart to the Lord. Reminds us the importance once again of thanksgiving, of putting in the good stuff when we take out the bad stuff. And this passage includes one more parallel participle, submitting to one another. John Phillips quips, we are to be filled with the Spirit, manifested in being thrilled in the Spirit, singing in our hearts, continually giving thanks. But we are also to be drilled in the Spirit, that it means trained to submit to one another. This is a transition verse. So breaking into paragraphs, different translations put it with a paragraph that follows, or the paragraph I have it here this morning, the paragraph that precedes. But it definitely is a bridge verse. It's a universal statement to all believers, submit to one another, Later, he'll break it down by aspects, by wives, husbands, children, bondservants, master, etc. But at this point, it's universal. All of us submit to one another. As he says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And here, Paul adds, in the fear of God. It's easier to submit to other people if we first submit to God himself. 
and we, we are drilled to be trained to be under his authority, to submit ourselves to him, and therefore we are willing to let God be God and be sovereign in our lives, and as he has called us then to submit to other people. So fools live in drunkenness and not understanding God's will. The wise are characterized by singing, giving thanks, and submitting. And the wise redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. Originally, I was going to have some fourth graders from my my wife's fourth grade class recite a little ditty that they say every morning at their Christian school about redeeming time, using the time wisely, using every opportunity. Uh, but I don't see those fourth graders here this morning, I don't think. And I, I don't want to be cruel to my wife and invite her up to, to share this. So I'll go ahead and read uh, what her class recites every morning. This is the beginning of a new day. God has given me this day to use as I will. I can waste it or use it for good. What I do today is important because I'm exchanging a day of my life for it. I want it to be good, not evil, gain, not loss, success, not failure, in order that I shall not regret the price I paid for it. Every morning, we're given a blank check of that day. At the end of the day, we have spent that check. Let's use our time wisely. Let's use it in singing and praising and thanksgiving and submitting to one another and in teaching one another. Christian ethics, then, is more than just the question, is this a sin? Christian ethics is discerning the will of God, which involves stewardship. It deciphers not only what's wrong and what's right. It deciphers what's better than what's good. There is no verse that says, don't spend eight hours every day in the summer as a high school graduate playing video games every summer. There is no verse that says that. That the Bible doesn't say that's a sin. But wisdom, stewardship says, I have a short life to live. Every day I'm given a blank check. What am I going to do with that day? It's a deeper and broader question. And so, As beloved children of God, we imitate him by walking in practical wisdom, including the wise use of time. Just like the Ephesians, they came to Christ. We have that snapshot. And now they have the arduous, long journey of walking in progressive sanctification. Paul's reminding us this is a journey, and we are to walk in love. We are to walk in light, and we are to walk in wisdom. But... It's not just us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and trying harder. It's grounded in the end of chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Or as he says in verse 2 of our chapter, and walk in love even as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. It's grounded in the statements and truths of the gospel to give us the exhortations of Christian living. It's free grace in Christ. It's free because he paid the penalty for our sins. He gave himself that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for this text of scripture. We thank you for these insights into the Ephesian church and where they went after the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, and how he continued to interact with them and to write to them. Father, I pray that you would be at work in our lives, that you would encourage but also exhort us through this passage of Scripture, we pray. 
In Christ's name, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.